We're joined by Professor David Bond, who is uh, at Bennington uh, College over there in Vermont. And uh, Professor Bond, along with some of his students, actually attended uh, the initial part of the uh, COP28 Global Climate Conference taking place in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, so, so, David, what was some of your initial reactions to spending some time at COP28? <laughs> well... Uh, I was uh, telling the students this morning, I was uh, cynical going in, uh, and I think I'm only more cynical having spent about a week on the ground in Dubai. And for people not familiar with this is, you know, a bit of a follow-up from the uh, Paris Climate Accords, always trying to put more details and, and, and teeth into it. Uh, I know one of the big issues going into it was the would they finally agree, Ashley, to clearly say we're going to phase out the use of fossil fuels and have a, a target date on that? A lot of people very upset by the thousands of fossil fuel lobbies were there, including the head of the United Arab Emirates, who you know basically is a sultan and running a you know fossil fuel company. Um, how how did that issue play out, or is it playing out? It's obviously still going on. Uh, it was a bit uh, shocking to me to see how. Uh how absent the phase, phase out of fossil fuels was uh, in some of the top discussions. Uh, that is the kind of point, like uh, if we're going to keep to any uh, reasonable goal uh, uh, for the climate crisis, uh, we have to phase out fossil fuels and we have to phase them out now. Um, in in some, uh, several of the negotiations I was tracking, um, we were basically talking about the possibility of talking about substantive negotiations with a goal uh, of maybe adopting policy in the next decade. These are all so wildly out of line with the urgency of the moment uh, that it, it, was, it was kind of a, a bit of a, an absurd theater. Uh, you felt like I was watching sometimes. Um, and striking also for how much of the conference uh, this time around was actually kind of adamantly uh, arguing in various clever ways against the phase out of fossil fuels. You know, a lot of people called the last cop, uh, the last chance cop, the last chance for the world to actually have a chance of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees. Uh, the reports that have come out that were now actually headed probably to three degrees Celsius warming in the last um by the end of the century, based on the comments of the Secretary General of the United Nations, I've been referring to this as the COP where they're cutting the ribbons for the uh, opening to the uh, gates of hell. But one of the other issues moving into this conference was, you know, whether or not the Global North industrial polluters started in the United States was actually going to provide some level of compensation, real money, not promises, hopefully not loans, to the Global South to help them pay for the loss and damages from um, the climate change, you know, driven by the fossil fuel polluters. How was loss and damages playing out while you were there? Well, you know, um, the loss and damages has been, there's been a strong movement uh, from the ground up uh, uh, for a loss and damage fund, uh, often led uh, by vulnerable countries in the global south. This is the first COP where that, that loss and damages was uh, promised to have a kind of substantial uh, commitment that was going to be sort of, you know, starting that actual uh, institutionalizing that loss and damage fund. Uh, what's happened, the, the details of that are almost laughable. Um, we're looking at an annual uh, cost to run that, uh, to, to, to have that fund adequate 
to the damages uh, and disasters that climate change uh, is enacting on vulnerable countries, that needs to be funded to the tune of about 400 billion a year. Uh, right now, uh, all, of the, all of the things that, that came in this COP, there was a big splashy announcement about it. They were all one-time charitable donations. No permanent funding mechanism has been established. Um, and the U.S. basically, you know, looked through the couch cushions and, and found some loose change to throw into that pot. Uh, all of it is completely inadequate to the scale uh, of need uh, in the countries that are already being devastated by climate change through flooding, superstorms, drought, uh, and sea level rise. Now, you know, loss and, 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 and damage is, is certainly, you know, tied to the concept of a, a just transition that, um, you know, not only should those most um, negatively impacted by climate change, which is, you know, usually the poor and, and people of color, you know, be protected, but also just transition means that everybody uh, is lifted up uh, together, including those, you know, presently working in the fossil fuel industry. What was the vibe around the, the, the just transition uh, concept at the COP? Uh, just transition was one of the more promising concepts <clears throat> I was excited about uh, coming in. Uh, both for the ways that um, labor has been, you know, authoring uh, this concept and pushing it forward, that the phase out of fossil fuel should be seen as an opportunity to radically rethink our economies uh, and, re and re-engineer them uh, around, you know, the lines of justice, equity, and fairness for all. Um, it was an ex exciting idea. Uh, I spent about four days uh, tracking the, the negotiations uh, around Just Transition, uh, and it was, uh, you know, uh, dispirited, uh, to say the least, uh, by the ways a pretty large coalition had, uh, had taken up Just Transition and bent it into the very opposite uh, of what it was designed to do. So you had uh, Saudi Arabia very loudly voicing uh, a, a, a kind of a statement that the just transition was only possible through uh, more expenditures of fossil fuels, um, that we had to, that you, you couldn't, uh, you know, imagine transitioning economies, especially from developing countries to developed nations without fossil fuels. Uh, and that actually we needed to, if we were going to talk about justice, it needed to be through uh, additional expenditures of fossil fuels. Uh, that was the Saudi uh, Arabia line. Um, and a number of other countries in various ways, the U.S. included, uh, just saying things that, that were like, you know, dead set against it. Uh, Brazil, in this, in this respect, was actually one of the more interesting uh, countries. Uh, in a lot of the just transition conversations, there was a real fault line between the global north and the global south. Uh, the global north was sort of uh, insisting upon centering labor rights, gender equity, and, and protection for indigenous people uh, in any notion of justice. Uh, a lot of the countries from the global south said all of those, all of those are, are sort of based within the terms of the nation state. Uh, and if we're going to talk about real justice, we have to center the inequality between nation states. Uh, and so Brazil was was interesting to me, insisting that if we're going to talk about the just transition, we have to first center the, the international history of capitalism uh, and the ways that capitalism has produced 
gaping inequities between uh, the global south and the global north. And that uh, facing up to that has to be the foundation for justice uh, in the just transition. Um, there are only about 90 seconds left. So I'm going to ask an open-ended question. I understand something like 70,000 people there. So my guess is you you were not too close to the actual inner negotiations. But, you know, what was it like uh, being there? And what's your what's your hope? In a- As an observer, you actually have access to the negotiation room. So I was during just transition. I was sitting one row back uh, from the diplomats and delegates uh, that were openly negotiating it in the room. So the, you're quite you're right there. Um my takeaway is, you know, I was talking to one of the lead activists from the Climate Action Network, uh, and they were, you know, basically saying this COP has proven that there's no hope for substantial victories from the COP uh, negotiations. There's also a need to fight every inch uh, of the way out uh, to demand accountability uh, and to shine a bright light on the growing corruption of the process as it's taken over. Uh, by the very industries that are causing the climate crisis. Um, and I was I was quite struck by, by that point. So if COP is now worthless at this point, how do you do those negotiations in the last 20 seconds? The, 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 the activists I was talking to, some of the folks that have been involved in COP from the beginning were saying, uh, if, if there's any hope for the radical change that we desperately need, it's going to come from outside the COP process. Uh, and, and, and they saw their task increasingly uh, as one of, of not winning victories within COP, but in slowing down the corruption of COP to give time for those other social movements to begin to build, build momentum. It's Professor David Bond, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.